race is on and it looks like heartaches and the winner loses all. Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker and very happy to not be hosting today's episode of the show. I brought it in for the f- reasons of familiarity, but I'm very happy to hand this off to a special guest host today and assume the, ge- the guest chair. And with that, I'm going to give you to Naomi Tucker. Naomi, the microphone is all yours. Thank you so much, Pete. Well, I'd like to straight away go and introduce our special guest alongside you here today, which is she's best known as an award-winning sports analyst for the NBC and NBC Sports Network. Donna Brothers was a former top jockey and has been involved with horses all her life, as well as having been vocal about the future of the thoroughbred racing industry via various articles of which the latest was titled Peter is a Bully. And of course, Pete, host of the In The Money Players podcast, but I'm very happy that you both have joined me here today so we can have an insightful discussion on the issues and challenges facing the American thoroughbred industry today. So welcome, Donna. How are you doing? I'm well, Naomi. Thank you for having me on. And um, Pete, it's a pleasure for me to be on this show with you because I really appreciate it the article that you wrote after my PETA article about um, putting horse racing fatalities in perspective. And um, so anyway, um, good to be on with both of you. Oh, we're very happy to have you here. So actually, I want to get straight into what you were doing today. You hosted the announcement of the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition earlier today at Keeneland, which was which is formed by industry heavyweights such as Breeders' Cup Limited, Chelter Dance Incorporated, Del Mar Thoroughbred Club, Strana Group, the New York Racing Association, to just name a few, to elicit comprehensive and centralized safety measures. Could you explain to the listeners what this new initiative is about and how are they planning to implement their proposed changes? Well, in case I don't do a great job of explaining it, I do want the listeners to know that they could go to thoroughbredsafetycoalition.com. It's obviously a brand new website that they have up up and running right now. So, yeah, as you mentioned, it's the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. The website's thoroughbredsafetycoalition.com. And according, you know, we did a press conference and there were questions and, of course, answers. And the question came about how did this coalition come about? How long has it been forming? And was there an impetus or was there a watershed moment that made it happen? And the answer to that was that they had been in discussions over the past many, many months, but certainly the the events in the past few months had um, accelerated their feeling of urgency to, to get together to act out more safety measures that would protect the horses, the riders, and just make it a safer, safer sport for everyone. So you mentioned most of the industry shareholders that have come to the table, but it's not an exclusive group. It's an inclusive group. So anybody else who wants to join the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition would certainly be welcome to participate. So the coalition would be sort of planning to be a nationwide sort of group and hence be more inclusive and hence trying to recruit other sort of sport groups into this as well? Yeah, nationwide to the extent that they are represented at many tracks around the nation. So mm-hmm. the, the people who were at the table um, were Breeders' Cup represented, represented by um, President and CEO Drew Fleming, Bill Thomason from Keeneland, 
Kevin Flannery from Churchill Downs. Uh, Tony Alivato was the New York Racing Association representative. Mike Rogers from the Stronic Group. And then we had two vets on the panel as well <clears throat> who have helped sort of to define what good protocols would be, at least in the beginning stages of this. And so right now, I think their initial goal, I guess, would be to look at track safety as far as the surface itself goes and to, to make that a bit more of a scientific approach and um, get Dr. McPeterson involved a bit more, but also to just to pull their funds and provide more resources to do the safety. Um, I'm sorry, to do the scientific research that they need to do to improve track safety conditions. And so that might be their first goal, but there's many, many things that we need to do right now. I mean, Pete, I mean, Anybody can tell you who's been involved with racing for a long time. If if there were only one issue, great. We could just fix it and live happily ever after. (laughs) No, exactly. And Pete, what is your initial reaction to this newly formed industry-led effort to increase safety across the board? Well, I'm very encouraged because one thing we don't have a great reputation for in thoroughbred racing is working together and working together across different little fiefdoms. Sometimes I describe racing as warring fiefdoms competing amongst each other without looking at what the greater goals are, whether those be uh, business goals or, in this case, safety goals. So I think it's terrific when you see the industry leaders who are a part of this and to give them a forum to work together. I, I think it's hard to, to be anything but, but optimistic when you see these power players coming together. Now, obviously, a lot of work still to be done. This is the, the first step on a marathon-like journey, but I'm very happy to see that step being taken and certainly, like I know a lot of other people in the industry, willing to help in any way I can, whether that's lending time on our shows on the In The Money Network or lending my, my pen slash keyboard to trying to publicize some of these initiatives. And I would like to add to that, I think, I'm sorry, Naomi. No, no, you go for it, John. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, Pete and I both wrote our articles from our passion, and, and our passion is about horse racing. And and I think both of our articles were just because we were tired of somebody standing on our throat. At least that's what it felt like. And it was time to just, you know, like, look, we are trying. As an industry, we are trying. And if you guys could just acknowledge that every now and then and just back up a little bit and give us a little bit of to breathe here, we could even show that we're trying And so neither one of us, neither Pete nor myself, I don't think ever um, thought that horse racing was perfect. It certainly isn't. I mean, there's a lot more we can do and there's a lot more we need to do. And this thoroughbred safety coalition was perfect timing for that. Right, Pete, because it felt like, you know, in a way we're saying, like, could you just acknowledge that we've made some steps forward? But we do, I think, all acknowledge that we have a long ways to go still. Just to piggyback off that idea, I love the fact that at this time, there's a temptation, I think, in some quarters to use this to advance our own agendas in in some cases, whether that be, and even for some things that might be good ideas, whether it's out of competition testing or the IHA or uh, Lasix, whatever, whatever the pet issue is. I think a lot of people are using this crisis to try to advance those opportunities. And I think that's the, the timing for that just isn't right. I feel like we're really in a fight for our, our lives and viability as a sport in California, especially, and to be able to come together and present a united front And at the center of that united front is the idea that horse racing is, in fact, an ethical pursuit. 
and to try to put that idea forward while proving that we're working on some of these critical issues. The timing is just fantastic. Exactly, it is. And actually, Donna, I wanted to ask you sort of a quick question still about the coalition itself, because it's also it's a great movement. But how do you think this group and obviously these heavyweight industry players are different? And how do you think they might be able actually to succeed in creating meaningful change within the industry? Well, it's certainly a bit of a crisis time for us right now in the racing industry. And so it's never been more important to get this done than it is right now. And the industry leaders that sat down at the table to come together and, and decide right now is the time. They understand how important it is right now, how important it is not only to do it, but to get it right. And so I think that the timing has never been better. Um, you know, maybe in the past that you've seen some organizations that say we're going to do this and we're going to do that and nothing really ever comes from it, but yeah. it's imperative upon the industry to get it right this time. And I think they understand that really, really well. Well, I certainly believe that there, if there's a group, as if any, it's them to make a difference. And I'm very positive in, in going forward, but Pete, just talking a little bit about you've written um, an article yourself as well. What would you highlight as being one of the most pressing issues in our industry thus far? I feel like to take a very high-level approach to what we do and explain to the world that at its heart, this is a fundamentally ethical exercise, that horses are bred for the purpose of running. They enjoy their jobs. There's a wonderful relationship between the humans and the animals who make this game go. And I think that's been lost in the national narrative, which unfortunately has been uh, largely promoted by some real enemies of racing in kind of a sinister way that make it almost sound like these horses have been plucked from some other endeavor and are being forced to do something that they don't want to do. And it makes... It gives this this idea that racing is a cruel pursuit. I just don't believe that at all. And I haven't been around horses nearly as much as either of you two have. But I feel like we need to get who we are at the core. And it's not even just how much we love the animals, but it's how much this partnership of human and animal is a beautiful, ethical thing that really makes this sport go. And I feel like that's a point that's just been lost amongst a lot of, uh, of infighting and politics and, and backpedaling that we've been seeing. So, so for me, that's a point I just wanted to really try to hammer home in the article and try to hopefully also just give some people some words to explain this stuff. I, I, all of us in racing have been hearing since the events of Santa Anita in the first three months of the year. What's going on at Santa Anita? What's going on at Santa Anita? And to be able to to give some words to explain that, yes, that was a, a, a really rotten cluster uh, of fatalities, and the, there were maybe reasons for it, but the fatalities that have happened since, still tragic, but part of the game in a way that, that makes a lot more sense. And while we can do more, and as as Donna and this new initiative, people are working hard to do even more in those regards than ever before. At its core, as terrible as as it is that we're going to lose horses from time to time, that that is an acceptable 
risk to take for the many rewards the game provides. And I feel like we need to get that message out, not the message of, oh, we're definitely going to get to zero fatalities. Because when you make that the bar, that, that's a bar you can only fail when you try to make. And, and I think that's, unfortunately, some messaging that was put out earlier in the year made it sound like that was you know remotely feasible, at least the way the media has reacted. And that's not the case. And we have to accept racing for what it is and be proud of it for what it is. Well, you make some very valid points. And I also do believe that, Donna, in your article, you've tied in sort of similar principles that Pete's highlighting here, such as, you know, the relationship between the equines and humans, as well as the media reporting and public perception. What is your view on this? Well, you know, I'm going to sound like I'm diverging for a second, and I'm not, but people have asked me over the past few years, why don't we see any female jockeys coming up anymore? Um, and I, my answer to that is, well, we also don't see a lot of white male jockeys who are American-born and bred coming up through the ranks either. And the bottom line is, is because, back to Pete's point, we don't have an agricultural society anymore. So, so few people actually grow up riding horses or even petting horses or taking care of horses. And so they truly just don't understand the, the relationship that we have with horses and, and that it's, um, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. As I mentioned in my article, I honestly don't think we domesticated horses, dogs, and cats. I think they domesticated themselves. I think mm-hmm. at some point they realized that their survival was going to be more likely if they were near the human species because we had more resources and so their conditions become became less volatile and yes they helped us work our farms and yes we made sure that they had straw to lay on when they went to sleep on a cold night and that they had hay to eat that we had harvested back in the fall and and now that they're still on the ground they still had access to food and so it became this mutually beneficial relationship and to us, it still is. Now, people who would depict us to be monsters think that we are benefiting only from them and don't realize that it goes both ways. And for us, we just know that it goes both ways. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I wanted to give some form of an example because I know you do in your article as well. Um, I wanted to highlight that Pakistan Star actually decided not to run again last Saturday at Shatin. And unfortunately, that's obviously not would like to see of him is incredibly talented dual uh, group one winner who have had the fortune of actually riding myself when he was a two-year-old and three-year-old but he decided that he didn't want to do it so that sort of ties in with you saying you know we're, we're working together with these animals but we're not forcing them to do anything because realistically we can't now can we <laughs> no <laughs> we've <laughs> seen thoroughbreds that don't want to race and for the most part we don't even attempt to race them because it doesn't work. And Pakistan Star is a perfect example of that. If they typically horses love to race. And so Pakistan Star, obviously something happened to him that's making him not want to race anymore. I've seen it happen a couple of times with horses who've had maybe two, three starts already and then get bothered really badly leaving the starting gate. And then they just won't leave the gate. And if they won't leave the gate, there's no amount of persuasion that's going to convince them that they need to leave the gate and so when our horses race it's because they like to race and if they do not like to race and they don't want to participate in it we just simply cannot force them to do it it's something they either want to do it or they don't yeah and 
you mentioned the you know the media reporting us saying you know we're trying to force force through and perhaps even just telling the positive stories or the stories of rehoming or doing other things with these incredibly intelligent animals might help as well but let's move on uh, to another aspect or something that i think would be very good to discuss um something you just mentioned touched on a little bit pete you were talking about um, race day medication and I would like to also highlight the public perception in relation to race day drug administration how do you think we can do better as an industry in relation to that well I'm curious to know uh, if today's announcement might actually have some bearing on that conversation I, I certainly think having a unified set of best practices and procedures nationally not necessarily from a new national governing body, but things that are agreed upon to be the same, whether you're talking about New York or Kentucky or California. The idea of racing, rather than being governed from the outside, but working together to create a set of consistent guidelines, I think that'll help a lot in terms of public perception. I am not somebody, I know it's a, it's such a hot-button political issue, you know, I'm not somebody who believes that the administration of, of race day Lasix is, a, is a, a major issue. I certainly don't think it's an issue that was connected to the breakdowns in any way, as was posited earlier this year. Um, but my biggest issue when it comes to the medication stuff is I, I like the idea of the industry working together to come up with a set of guidelines and not to have that be a talking point related to the breakdowns. I, I think that's a, a I, I think it's just a very slippery slope and you, you get into junk science very quickly in a way where the messaging to the public is just is just all wrong. And I'd rather, again, take that step back to the higher level, look at fundamentally what we're doing, explain how that should be okay, why we're an ethical, acceptable practice, and then working together to create rules that make sense. And some somebody's going to have, you know, there's going to have to be some give and take along the way to make that happen. But I'm hoping we're at a time in the industry where where we can actually make that happen. Mm. But this is more sort of a personal opinion here. It, even if someone, let's say someone is pro or con Lasix, shouldn't that not be the question of the debate, but more how the public is regarding it? At, th at this point, I feel like we've gotten so far sort of down the rabbit hole already that it's not about even if it is effective or it isn't effective or it's good or bad. But if, if the public thinks it is terrible, shouldn't that be enough reason for us wanting to save our, you know, our future and the public not stepping in and saying, you know what, ban this beautiful industry that we, that we all love by our, I don't know, reluctance to perhaps get rid of a drug that, you know, pro or con could be the case. Because you're saying, you know, let's not do those little things. And perhaps they're little things, but don't you think that they could have a larger effect in terms of public perception? I think that as far as public perception goes, the public just needs to be educated about what Lasix does, for example. And I don't feel like if, if you had the opportunity to explain to the general public like what the role of Lasix is, I don't think it would I don't think you'd have the perception that it was something that led to to far reaching cheating. I think what really confuses the public is when you have different rules in different places and they're not administered consistently or in the same way. 
that's where I think the idea of having a national best practice and just consistent me- messaging about what's allowed and what's not allowed and why. And then I think it seems like way less of a chaotic mess. I think from the outside looking in at the racing medication rules around the country, it's hard to come up. It, it looks from the outside, it looks like the Wild West. And I think that's really bad for public perception. But I think if you can come up with consistent guidelines and enforce them in a way that makes sense, I think some of that goes away. I don't think the idea that there's any medication involved in a horse is necessarily anathema to a sporting public that's used to, that understands taking Advil or whatever, whatever procedures or, or medications athletes have to take uh, that, that are not, you know, it's that fine line between is it performance enhancing or is it to increase the comfort? And, but I think that the, the messaging on it needs to be a lot more clear and the rules need to be a lot more straightforward than they are. But I don't think medication is something that inherently turns off the public if it's done in the right way. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate on that and say that that fine line is a little bit problematic. Pete, when we in racing are using what we call to be um, a diuretic that reduces the rate of exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhaging, that we're using it for that when 90% of the horses are now getting it, right? So it's a little hard to say it's not a performance enhancer when we're giving it to 90% of our horses. And and we haven't proven that 90% of the horses bleed. So, you know, right now this is an issue that I'm kind of on the fence with because if you had asked me a year ago, I would say public perception is such that we need to get rid of Lasix right now. So Naomi, I understand your point and I think that the public perception has shifted that way. But I also agree with Pete that we haven't done a very good job of educating our audience. And quite frankly, right now would be a horrible time to take Lasix away because then now we're going to have horses bleeding on the track. Imagine that photo. It only makes things worse. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a very good point. And uh, you know, the, 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 you see in this modern culture, uh, the, the picture being worth a thousand words more than ever. And something that even, even a low scale, not deleterious in the long term, uh, bleeding picture of a horse, you, you could see the enemies of racing doing all kinds of terrible things with it that we're, we're misrepresenting the scope of what's really happening and, and only going to hurt us more. I mean, it's a, it's an it's a it's a very interesting conversation and I and I definitely respect what you're saying Donna about the idea of what's performance enhancing versus what's really needed for comfort. You're probably right in that we're we're beyond that at this point because of where we are in terms of fighting for for racing in California and around the country as a as a entity that's going to continue for another, you know, few hundred years. Well, th- that sort of brings me a little bit to the point that you're both making is what consists of positive public education to change that perspective, uh, perception? And, and what can we do? I know, Donna, in your article, you basically call up all horsemen and say, get all the positive messaging out, messaging out there and show us what your life with these horses is like. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that we can do. One thing that we can do is to continue to, instead of just having our back against the wall and just, continuing to defend ourselves um share the story stories of the horses that you love of the first horse that you rode um sophie doyle actually made a post the other day on twitter that was shared widely um of her with a horse and and she had a a beautiful saying on there about 
I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but something about, oh, wait, I found it. Let a horse whisper in your ear and breathe in your heart. You will never regret it. And this was a post that was liked 634 times and shared 72 times. And so if we can do more of these things, and by the way, the, the um, it's a little video of her with a horse and he's nuzzling on her. And, you know, they obviously have um, have good feelings towards each other. And so I think the more that we can do that, the more that we tell our story, the more we change the narrative, the better. But it's not enough. Uh, we also need to all get behind every single you know, like what the, the Third Bird Safety Coalition is doing, anything that we can do to make racing safer for horses. And, and um, yeah, and also, you know, Pete's article was good in that letting people know that, you know, we love our dogs and our cats. And sadly, dogs and cats are um, euthanized at humane society, I mean, at, at animal shelters um, all around the nation on a daily basis. And, and it's a sad part of our relationship with the animals. But at the same time, we view those relationships as important, and I believe the animals view those relationships as important. I think that's an incredibly strong point, but I did want to actually uh, perhaps pick your brain about this because you strongly make that pet comparison. Do you think we can compare you know, the having pets at home to us? in the racing industry, you think that's viable? I do. And it's not a, an absolutely direct or perfect comparison, but in a sense, it's the only one we have because for so many of us, for so many of the people who might end up voting in this ballot measure in California, but this is really goes for people all across the USA in 2019. The only contact we have with animals is our pets. So I want people to think about them. And, and that comparison in the piece made a lot of people unhappy um, because they, they, they felt like, I think a lot of people felt like I was saying that by uh, owning a pet, you were you were somehow uh, part of the the bad things that happened in the pet industry, and 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 I don't believe that. I believe in pets. I have a pet. I have a Labrador Retriever sitting at my feet right now. Muggsy, the handicapping Labrador, frequent guest on the show. I love dogs. I love people who love dogs. All I was saying was that clearly in the pet industry. All of us who have dogs, you might even only get rescue dog, but you're still, if you're not spending your life then trying to crusade for the elimination of the concept of pets, you're clearly on some level okay with the fact that there is this negative side to the pet industry. Nobody's happy about it, but we accept it because those risks, that downside of the pet industry is worth these wonderful relationships we have with our dogs who, you know, in 2019, in many instances, sleep in the bed. They're, they're our workout buddies. They're members of the family. There's so much more than, uh, th than just livestock. And I was, I, get, I think in a way, trying to get in all these pet owners out there who might not know racing, get in their head the idea that in racing, it's really kind of the same dynamic where yes there are bad things that are going to happen and in racing they, they it's not like it, in the pet industry where a lot of this stuff is it's happening out of sight and in many for many people out of sight out of mind we don't have that luxury in racing we see some bad stuff happen right out there in the open but the analogy to me is that the risk is worth the reward the tremendous relationships we have with these animals everything that racing gives to us 
in terms of uh, our personal and professional lives. The good outweighs the bad, and we can continue to work to make that downside less. But it's not a case of that that downside has to be zero for racing to be worth it. Racing justifies its existence in the gifts that it gives, even though we know there are some negatives attached. That's where I see the analogy to the pet business. I don't, I don't want people to get too literal about it. It's more the overarching concept about humans and our relationship with animals and risk and reward. That's what I wanted people to be thinking about. Most people got it. A few people got really upset. Donna, I just wanted to get back to you saying that anything we can do, just like supporting the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition, we should do. And I really sort of want to um, get your thoughts on another angle, which is something that Todd Pletcher mentioned on a different podcast, which is he was outlining a, a holistic approach to the preparation of thoroughbreds and that we should be looking at from when they're bred to being a foal to weanling to yearling and two-year-old management, which also includes, you know, corrective surgeries and feeding and supplemental practices. And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I listened to the podcast with Todd and I thought he was spot on. Um, one of the things that trainers can't control is the fact that many or some, I don't want to say many, but some of the yearlings that are either purchased by them or, or for them to train or maybe their two-year-olds have already had surgeries. Um, and, and I get that at some point there was a, a benefit to that, 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 you know, we had yearlings or I'm sorry, foals that were probably never going to make it to be racehorses. And so they were given corrective surgeries, much like we've seen our own children in corrective braces, um, leg braces. Um, so yeah, they were given these corrective surgeries to give them a better chance to make it as a, as a racehorse. But I, I really don't know the answers to that. I'm certainly not an expert in that area. I know that um, there are, there are benefits to it. I just have to, it, I have to think that there must also be some detriments to it. And I think that was Todd's point. Uh, and in me not being an expert in the veterinarian field, I wouldn't know where the line is on, which kind of surgeries you should or shouldn't do on those weanlings, but, or on the, um, you know, the, the babies when they're very, very young, when they're foals. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's so much more we could do. I mean, it, it starts from every level. Every time that we have a touch point with a horse, we have an opportunity and we also have a responsibility to do the right thing by that horse and to take care of them. And we need to make sure that at all of those touch points, the people who are involved are do, doing the right thing with those horses. Exactly. Pete, is there anything you wanted to add to sort of that concept? I feel like I'm a bit over my skis when I get to talking about uh, <laughs> that issue, just because it's so far from my <laughs> own area of expertise that I'll I'll, uh, I'll leave it with, with Donna, who, who obviously understands the world a lot better than I do at that level. And only a little better, believe me. <laughs> 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 well, I very much have to agree with you there, Donna, as well as with Todd, having been very fortunate to do a fair bit of work on stud farms as well as on the racing side. I do believe that it's it's such a long trajectory that we have with these amazing, amazing animals and possibly nationwide regulations or any any measure or something that, you know, the industry governing bodies come together to see if there's anything that we can do to regulate it a little bit more or to perhaps have some consistency in what everyone's doing so we can help each other in a way. 
I think the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition long-term could probably help in that regard. I, I think that, you know, if, if more and more industry stakeholders get together, and certainly the, the uh, Thoroughbred Safety Coalition is not an exclusive um, group of, of tracks and industry stakeholders, they would like to be inclusive of everybody. And I think the more people that in, in different facets of racing, whether it be breeders or sales companies or veterinarian groups or what have you, the more of those industry groups that sign into an organization like the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition, the greater likelihood is that we can affect real change. Exactly. And, and also, I hope that for everyone involved, we can also see the bigger picture so we don't go ahead sort of pushing our own little agenda. Sort of what you mentioned, Pete, that we are looking at working together as an industry and possibly that's a bit of give and take, isn't it? I think so. And it's one of the things I think we've had the most problems with. And you see it, you've seen it a lot in these in these discussions where I, I don't like the idea that the first conversation we're having after Mongolian Groom's unfortunate passing is, oh, well, we need to have synthetic surfaces in California. To me, that's like, whoa, 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 slow down. You know, I, I'm not a guy who's anti-synthetic, but I'm anti-rushing decisions. And I feel like our first experiments with synthetics in this country, they were rushed in and they were rushed out. And I just, I don't think, we, I've seen that movie and I don't want to see it again. The idea of trying to do things in a slower way, I love the fact that in the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition press release, it specifically mentioned doing things based on data and not just on on passion and knee-jerk reactions. Those are the kind of responses I think we need to have. And, and the idea of banding together and really trying to strategically solve problems. And this is a tangent, but it's a thought I definitely want to get in on the show and am curious to, to see what your guys' reaction to this is. Obviously, minimizing breakdowns, extremely important, and I'm sure that's one of the missions at the core of the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. But I also wouldn't get away from the idea of what I think could be long-term a more achievable goal. As I've said, I don't believe you can ever get to 0% fatalities. We've all heard terrible stories about horses turned out in fields finding ways to, to, to hurt themselves. It's just it's part of the nature of the beast. I don't think you ever can realistically get to, to 0% when it comes to equine fatalities. I do think we could still do a lot more when it comes to improving our adoption rate of thoroughbreds and, and finding ways to finance and facilitate the care of every racehorse when their racing days are over. And, and that's an issue, another issue I'd love to see looked at long-term that I think could really help the long-term viability of the sport and really would back up my assertions that I feel very strongly that, that horse racing is ethical, finding a way to, to really take care of that. There, there's a lot of big-picture projects. I love the idea of a somewhat centralized organization trying to take up some of these fights and uh, and win them uh, but i think the the biggest thing right now is to to avoid avoiding turning this conversation into low level infighting and or supposedly magic bullets that aren't going to move the needle with our enemies and the best example of this i can give is look at the safest racing in the world the best uh, the least amount of uh, fatalities in in the world i i believe it's hong kong 
And I, I think even there, you're still looking. If, if we could, in the USA, get our fatality rates down as low as they are in Hong Kong, you still, unfortunately, would be talking about losing whatever it would be, 160, 170 horses a year. That's still plenty of fodder for our enemies to say, oh, look, they still lost hundred more than 150 horses in a year. Look how bad these guys are. And so I, I think rather than trying to just obsess on taking that number down, it's important, and believe me, I'm not saying it's not important to do everything we can to reduce that number. It is. But it's not the end-all, be-all magic bullet to, to solve what ails horse racing. I think it's more about positioning ourselves as what we are and being proud of what we are and not trying to be something that we're not and not fighting amongst ourselves. Those are a lot of key things that I just I needed to make sure I got off my chest at some point here, Naomi. <laughs> no, well, thank you so much for that. <laughs> oh, Donna, having listened to Pete here, is there anything that you would like to chime in on? I'll talk about the tracks just because of the composition of the tracks is different everywhere. Right. And so a lot of people, I agree with Pete, they think that, okay, we just need to install synthetics and that'll reduce our numbers of um, catastrophic injuries. Well, I was talking with the track man, um, Jamie Richardson at Churchill Downs one day about their unique composition, which is river sand, clay, and silt. And he said that this composition works really well for this racetrack in this climate because of the amount of rainfall we get and because we don't race in the winter. And so every track has its unique climate. It's, it's unique microclimate. Not only that, every racetrack around the United States, um, some are going to be used throughout the year and some are going to be used for only a few months out of the year. Some are going to be used only in the morning for a few months out of the year and only raced on for a couple of months. And so every racetrack has to fit that climate and that horse population. And so to think that you could take a synthetic track that is proven to be safe in England and then just bring it over here and throw it into one of our climates that is so different from what it is in England is um, another, another shot at trying to fix a really difficult issue with what seems to be an easy answer, and it's not that easy. Yeah, no, I'm very glad that you mentioned that because I was going to mention that indeed, you know, there's been talks of installing a synthetic service or, or even thoughts that resembles that to Peter's service that's at Wolverhampton and Newcastle, where they've had, I believe, 0.03% fatalities at both tracks over the last three years, which is obviously a phenomenal rate. But as you mentioned, and you make you know, very good points there, it's different in every state, in every climate. And to make sure that we do the right thing would be to do right by a very experienced track superintendent. So I'm very glad to hear that. I think that was throughout the coalition as well, that all the, the, the heads of those different racetracks were saying we're looking at data. Did they mention anything else that they were looking at changing or were there any, any other ideas that stood out to you throughout that press conference? Well, I'll tell you, Naomi, right now they're at step one, which is to come together and form a coalition. And that coalition has a stated intent and a mission to make horse racing safer. And so that really is step one, getting these brilliant minds, these industry stakeholders all to sit down at the table and say, what can we do tangibly to improve horse racing and where do we start? And as I mentioned earlier, racing surfaces is one of the first places that they're going to start, but it's not by 
going in and just changing every racing surface, but rather taking a more scientific approach to it and trying to figure out how do you determine? Is it, I mean, you can't just do, um, uh, you can't just keep randomly mixing dirt and sand and other elements and see what works. And then the horses are the guinea pigs, right? There's got to mm-hmm. be some better way to determine what's the best composition for that track at that, at that particular place. Well, I'm hoping that um, scientific advantage, advantages or advances uh, might help us with that. I do believe that they had uh, machine testing in California at the time, looking at the impact of the track. Now, I'm not an expert on that, so I don't know if you know more about that, Pete, testing of tracks throughout, throughout the country. I don't know too much about it, but I know that with synthetic, it was not done in a very scientific way. And there were some environmental, a lot of this is hearsay, which I hate to throw out there, but I'm just going to do it. There were some (laughs) environmental uh, rules in California that the surface they were putting in in California wasn't even the one that had been uh, successfully tested in other parts of the country. It was not... It was not done scientifically, and I think any movement to bring in more synthetic tracks at certain places in the country should just be done in a, mu- in, in a slower, much more scientific way with consulting horsemen and uh, bringing it in. I, mean, I feel like the way Keeneland did it was the, was the best example of any of them, where it was on the training track and horsemen had a chance to get accustomed to it. But I would just be very careful about diving headlong into that pool before we know if there's any, if there's any water in it. Because, of course, the other thing you always hear about synthetic, and I've heard this from enough uh, horsemen I really respect that I've got to take it very seriously, was the idea that while catastrophic injuries were in fact reduced, that there were more soft tissue injuries that created other problems for, for horses and horsemen. Look, I'm not anti-synth. I think it may well have more of a role in USA racing at lower levels, especially and, uh, and in, in training tracks, but I just don't, I don't want to see the mistake that we saw before of just jumping into it headlong and, and haphazardly. Yeah, exactly. Well, Thank you both so much for your input. I want to sort of round off this conversation, Donna, asking you, looking at the future now, would you say, especially after today, especially after this announcement that seems you know, incredibly promising moving forward, would you say that the outlook is positive? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I left the um, press conference today feeling like the industry is – putting its best foot forward in the right way at the right time with the right people. And um, I think that, and in having talked to all of these individual stakeholders in um, another room before and after the press conference, I can tell you that they are all individually and as a unit committed to this. And it's not just, um, it's not just them using rhetoric to try to um, appease the press, the media or anybody else they truly are committed to industry reforms. Well, that's incredibly good to hear. And Pete, what are you, Peter, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I just love hearing that. And again, I like the idea of the industry trying to work together. Obviously, we've got to prove that that can work and that it's not going to turn into internal squabbling and that folks will be ready to put the greater good of the sport and the future of the sport ahead of, of some of their own interest potentially, but it's quite possible that the the seeds of change are here and that if the industry sees that good things can happen from working together, we can start working together in some other areas too, coordinating 
things for owners and and gamblers and the people who put all the money into the sport. But that's more my own personal agenda and interest. They're at the background right now. Right now, the number one thing I want to see is folks working together to create safer racing and to put some cohesive messaging out there into the world about who we are and what our sport is. And again, to anybody listening, I know we have a lot of industry people who listen to this show. Uh, This isn't just lip service. If there's a way we can use uh, these podcasts to help have some of these conversations, debates, whatever it is, if there's a way that I could use my pen or keyboard to try to help underline some of the important things going on. I, I really want to help. I, I, I wasn't born into racing. I came to racing very late in life, not till my, not till my 20s, really. But it's, it's changed my life. I love the horses themselves. A day that I get to spend around horses is a good day. And if there's stuff we can do to help in any way, uh, we, we are here. And that's sort of the, I feel like I can't leave with any better message than that, Naomi. <laughs> well, you summed it up very well there. And, and personally, the this announcement today does fill me with hope as well, because that lack of a nationwide governing body or even just a nationwide body that tries to regulate it has been something that actually goes back about a year and a half when I was on the Godolphin Flying Start that we had assigned projects of how we would improve the USA thoroughbred racing industry and this was actually one of the aspects that i joined by the australian trainee caitlin butler we came up with sort of an idea of how can we get people to work together now i'm not saying it was this idea that they have now here but i'm so happy to because this to me is definitely the first strong step in the right direction so thank you both so much i really really enjoyed this conversation and i hope that the listeners did too naomi have you listened to enough of these in the ring shows that you know how i close them out all right. Thank you so much to all our listeners and may the hammer drop your way. 